0: Friends, if you would turn in your copy of scripture to Romans chapter 16, Romans chapter 16, we are finishing up this letter together this morning and it's a little bittersweet and uh, it's been a joy to be able to walk through this text together with you over the summer and then we're going to be launching into Advent next Sunday and we're going to be looking at the life of uh, the prophet. Uh, John and then Jesus focusing on him during Advent and then Christmas time and all those things. But right now, for this moment, the Lord has us in Romans 16. And I wonder if any of us have heard a sermon on this list of names that has has been given here that I'm going to be reading here in a moment. But I wanted to just simply read this chapter together. And then uh, we're going to walk through it uh, and look at these uh, two commands and then this undergirding principle That gives support to these commands. So let's look at Romans chapter 16. And I'm just going to read the whole chapter. The Apostle Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, these words. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apollos, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodians. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphana and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, tro- chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet a- Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas. And the brothers who are with them, greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus and his sister, Olympus, and and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel... We see in this passage a host of names that uh, you can get a little tongue-tied on. Because, uh, quite honestly, as long as you just pronounce them any way that you want, I know that there's some debate about this, but my own take on it is, hey, we don't know exactly how these are are pronounced, so just do it. Just pronounce it however way you want to pronounce it. You could call them Aristobulus, Aristobulus. You could do any number of things, but just say them. Because the names matter. And there's a reason why the names matter, because people matter. People matter. There are 27 people listed by name, and that doesn't list off all the brothers and sisters and all these things that Paul talks about. But he names 27 people, some of which he kind of knew in his travels, but most he didn't know. He just heard about their faith. And then there are eight more people listed on the other side of that greeting. So he's saying, send send greetings to these 27 named people. And then here's eight people that are greeting you. So these people matter. See, I want us to notice, first of all, this first command. This first command that we see in these uh, first verses 1 through 16 is simply this. Embrace one another. It's this first command that we see in Paul's writings. Embrace one another one another. I want you to notice the verbs that Paul uses starting in verse one. He says the verb I commend and commend is this mashing together of two words that essentially means to stand with or to stand together. He's saying, I commend to you. I'm walking arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder with my sister Phoebe, and I'm commending her to you as I would commend myself to you, so you get this image that Paul is is saying these people are not just people, but they are the people that are standing together and they're standing with you. But then we see this repetition of the word greet throughout, and this isn't just, and you see it in verse three, and then you see it in every single verse from verse five to sixteen, and a couple times you see it in in, in one or two verses, a couple times there. And it's not simply Paul saying hello. A lot of times, you know, is, hey, send my greetings to so and so. No, the word itself is this image of hugging, it's this image of embracing one another. And he keeps using the word. He could just, if for a matter of course, he could just say, hey, greet all these people and then just list them out. Why do you think Paul says, greet Priskin Aquila? Greet Epinetus? Greet Mary, greet Andronicus and Junia. He, he 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 is at pains to say, I want you to take these individuals that you see in their face and you know them by name, and I want you to wrap your arms around them because people matter. It isn't just a matter of course where he's just like, hey, just breeze through these names and hey, I want you to say hi as a you know as a, as something nice to do. He's saying, no, I want you to embrace them and I want you to love them as a brother or sister in Christ. You know, one of the things that it took me uh, a couple weeks to get used to when I first moved to Argentina. For some of you may not have known that I lived in Argentina for a couple years before Ashley and I got married. And uh, one of the things they do in Argentina is something uh, where they, they you know, go up to one another. When you greet somebody, you I wish I could have some, Jake, you want to come up here and we'll, you can be a little prop. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But basically, when you greet somebody, you would go up to them and you'd go up and kiss the air. Right next to their face. So this is their cheek. You touch cheeks and you kiss the air. Well, you don't kiss them on the cheek. That's a mistake that I made. I actually kissed the director of the uh, entire South American mission for Campus Crusade. I went up and I said, "Oh, everybody's kissing each other." So I kissed him right on the cheek. He said, "Oh, you don't have to be that friendly. Just kiss the air. That that works." So, but that's how they greeted each other. And if you would go into a room, so. Typically, in Argentina, you would sit around a circle and you'd pass around a mate cup. you share a straw together. and I can share more of that with you at some other time. But you'd go into a room and there'd be 20 people sitting in a room. And you know what you'd do? You, you wouldn't do the American saying, hey, everybody, I'm here. I'm going to go sit in my chair. No, no, no. You had to go around to each individual and say, hola, como estas? Muy bien, okay? Then you go to every single person. It took forever, and it was the most beautiful thing that I ever experienced. And it's one of the things I miss the most about Argentina, actually, is that people mattered. People mattered enough to take the time. It took probably 10 to 15 minutes to greet a whole room and you would do it. Now, there were certain cultural things. If it was a group of 100 people, then you didn't have to do that. But you just had to kind of read that out. But the very least, if there was a group of people, you wouldn't just say, hey, man, see ya. Hey, no, you would go in and you would say hello to every single person. You would greet Priskin Aquila with a holy kiss. You would greet Epinetus. you would greet Mary, you would say their name, you would look at them in the face and say, you matter. You matter so much that I'm going to say hello to you. What a travesty we have in our American culture that just says, hey, I'll tweet you or I'll, I'll, I'll put a like on your social and consider that as a friendship as opposed to, no, I'm going to take the time it takes because you were made in the image of God and I'm going to say hello to you. How are you? That's something I miss a lot. And I wish in some ways that we could adopt that as a culture. And if a kiss is too much, then maybe just saying hello would do. So, But it can be really easy to breeze through these names, can't it? It can be really easy whenever, you know, typically in numbers, if you go to numbers, you can, you can see all these lists of names. And you're like, oh, my goodness, I can't even pronounce them. And I really don't want to even try to read them. So I'm just going to go on to chapter 11. Well, Paul doesn't want us to do that. And I think that's why he puts these words to pause, to cause us as the readers to slow down and say, greet, greet. And then he throws in these little sayings. And I think it's really instructive for us as Christians, how Paul views each of these people that he mentions. Notice the language here. He says, verse one, a servant or a deacon of the Lord, Phoebe, right? Verse two, worthy of the saints. Verse 3, fellow workers, and that's also in verses 9 and 12. Fellow workers, kinsmen, fellow prisoners in verse 7. Verse 8, beloved. Verse 13, a mother to me. In verse 14, brothers. These aren't just people that he's saying hello to. And these aren't just people that are Christians who are dying for their faith. These are family members. That he has grown to love even folks that he doesn't even know. So that when we hear news coming from Cuba, for example, when Deidre went there, that that our hearts are like, Lord, please provide for their needs. These are our brothers and sisters, and they matter because people matter to God. There is a deep intimacy here that Paul models for us in our own lives. And, and this language of family reaches all the way back to Jesus. Remember that when Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 is sitting around and and, uh, some people come and say, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside and they want to see you. What does Jesus do? He says, who are my mother and brothers? And it says he looks around at those who are seated with him. He says, these are my mother and brothers. And my brothers, the ones who seek to do the will of my father. So what does Jesus do? That's that's pretty scandalous what Jesus is doing in that moment. And it's pretty scandalous in some ways of what Paul's doing here, that that brotherhood and sisterhood and motherhood and fatherhood are no longer determined by who gave birth to you. But it's by those who do the will of the father. That's scandalous. And in some ways it should be scandalous to us. As Christians, our entire family relationships have been reconfigured by the gospel. By the gospel. So the question comes to us this morning from this first command. How do you view people in the church, but then particularly in this church, Christ the Redeemer Church? How do you view the people in this church? Are they merely people you attend services with on Sunday? I want you to consider this question. Have you considered that when we speak of God being love, and this is how St. Augustine spoke about it, when we speak about love, the only way that we really experience God's love is through other people. That's pretty fantastic when you think about it. The words that we read, the 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 words that we hear, the relationships that we have, that is God's way of reflecting and showing us and, act, and actually, in real time, loving us. It's not some some you know pie in the sky or some kind of ephemeral type love that we say God is love. No, how is God, God is love, right? In First John, that's what he talks about. Well, it's very clear that what John is talking about is that it's through relationships with other people that you experience the love of God. And the more we cloister ourselves off from other people the less of the love of God we experience. So the people sitting in the pews next to you are not just people that you worship with. They are your mother and your brothers and your sisters, your kinsmen, your fellow workers, your fellow prisoners, the ones who you walk shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm. And if you don't feel that way, then there might be something... That needs to be reconfigured in the way that you view the church. These aren't just people. These are people who have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ into a family, adopted into a family. So I put together about five uh, different points of application to be able to help us along the way to become more of like a family and less of like people who just merely attend church together. So what I did is uh, this morning I printed off member directories and we've been working on this for the last few weeks uh, and printed these off. And if you're a member or a regular attender of Redeemer, uh, which I don't see any visitors, so please, everybody can come up and get one um, after there's one for each family. And so I want you to grab one of these and I want you to use this as a tool. I want you to use this as a tool. We've got it's. Alphabetized and and mirroring what I do every Sunday when I pray for people in our congregation. I'm just working through the alphabet of our membership directory. So I prayed for Loretta today. I prayed for uh, Katie last week. And I pray you know, so that if you want to know who I'm going to pray for next week, uh, it looks like it's going to be the powers. So, you know, so basically walk through this list and pray for individuals on this list, because these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And to be able and it also has addresses on here. It also has phone numbers that you can text or call people, it has their kids' names on here if they have children. And you can just walk through this together. This is a tool that we can use as a church to grow in our love for one another. And there may be people on here like, Who in the world is that? Well, you can I want I want to challenge you to find out who it is. Say, hey, Does anybody, hey, Matt, could you tell me who that person is? And I'll go introduce you to that person so that you can know who they are. So just cite, and then once you get through, uh, you know, I guess we're the last ones on the list. So once you get to the Wiremans and you cycle back through, back to the beginning of that membership directory, and it's a good practice to have to walk through that and to pray through members and regular attenders in our church family. And then along with this uh, membership directory, a second thing you can do is try to make a point to have at least one family one person over to your house once a month. Say, you know what? On the third Thursday of every month, we're going to have somebody over to our house for dinner or for coffee and dessert. Just have one once a month. Nothing nothing that's real earth-shattering with that. Uh, I mentioned this. I alluded to it. a third way that you can apply this is if you don't know somebody's name. If you're like, I've seen their face multiple times And I don't like going up to people I don't know. I want to challenge you to go introduce yourself. I promise you, even myself, who I'm a bit of an extrovert, but I also have a very strong introvert tendency. I I get a little nervous, too, talking to people I don't know. It's it's not an introvert-extrovert thing, I promise you. It's a human thing where it's like, uh. So I want to challenge you to not be reticent. Because I promise you that they're just as, you know, it's kind of like a... The boys and the girls at the dances in school were like, I don't want to ask them. Don't don't let that inhibit you from getting to know somebody made in the image of God and bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Um, And essentially what you're doing when you're stepping out to welcome somebody, you're reflecting like we just saw last week in Romans chapter 15 to welcome other people how Jesus Christ has welcomed you. He didn't wait for us to come to him. He took the initiative and he said, I'm going to welcome you. I'm going to open the door of my life and I'm going to welcome you into it. So I want to I want to encourage you to do that. So if you don't know somebody's name, go introduce yourself. Ask them where they're from, where they work, what what they're doing. Uh, Fourth point of application is come 15 minutes before our service starts. And make an effort to get to know each other. So that's something you can do. So we start at 10.30, come at 10.15. Not 10.35. Come in 15 minutes before the service and try to get to know other people. And you can ask simple questions like, hey, how's your time in the Bible going? Reading anything good lately? Watching any good shows? And then uh, here's another one. This is the last point of application is stay 15 minutes after the service. So one of my favorite things to witness in our church is people gathering in the pews or gathering outside and talking to one another and catching up and seeing how each other is, is doing and seeing if you can help each other. So see what other people are doing for lunch. I've heard people I've kind of been a fly on the wall and heard people inviting each other over for lunch. Make make a make a, a point in your schedule to open it up, to welcome people in for lunch or coffee. But I want to encourage you, don't hurry out. Don't hurry out. Linger. Because it's in those moments that we actually become the church that we see in Romans 16. I hear a lot of Christians say, I just want to be an axe kind of church. I want to experience the Holy Spirit and power that the the early church experienced. That's how they did it. They took time to say hello. They took time to love one another. They took time to talk to one another. And I say, let's gather our stuff. And I thank God that that's not the kind of church that we have But we have to be on guard against that because the human tendency is, I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm just going to get out of here. Stay, linger. There are people here that love you and that want to extend that love to you. I'm not again, I'm not asking for introverts to suddenly become extroverts. I'm not asking the shy to suddenly become not shy. But what I am doing is I'm challenging each of us to step out of our comfort zones to risk. To open ourselves up to other people. Because this is what I've experienced in my own short time here on earth. Is that, that experience in the fullness of God does not happen when we are in places of comfort. When we are, Our human tendency is to gather around ourselves. As we've looked at throughout Romans. Is to gather around ourselves. People like us. People have the same hobbies. The same interests. And we gather ourselves with, with other people like us. But experiencing God in all of his fullness comes in those moments of least comfort. When you're like, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust that this is going to be good for me. So step out. Step out of that comfort of wanting to kind of hold on to somebody's hand and step out and love somebody. Love somebody with with words of encouragement. And I want to remind you that these are not people that you're merely attending church with. These are your brothers and your sisters, your co-laborers, your mother and your father. I am telling you that to experience the fullness of the church and God's love is through people. That's how you experience the fullness of the church. And many of us have been hurt by people in the church. That's the point. That's the point. That's that's how it happens, unfortunately. Unfortunately. I think it was C.S. Lewis who famously said you can you can keep yourself from getting hurt by wearing armor, but you can't feel a lot inside of that armor. So I want to encourage us to take off the armor and risk being hurt again. I mentioned that when we talked in Romans 14 before, and I can't help but feel like I need to say it again. Is that to experience the fullness of God, you've got to take off the armor. Take off the things that keep you from experiencing, from feeling the pain, feeling the hurt, but also feeling the embrace of a brother or sister. I'm going to uh, send out an article that Ashley sent me um, that was really good, that's talking about friendship in the fire. To be able to have us retrain how we think about relationships. And how we think about friendship uh, in our worlds. I want you to open up your lives and welcome others in. Because that's where the fullness of God, the Spirit of God can come and minister to you where you least want him to. But then secondly, we see this second command. And that's in this uh, second, well, I guess the latter latter half of this. Verses 17 through 24, which I'm not going to read. I already read it. And as much as I wish that this weren't the case, this is the second command, is to watch out for one another. Watch out. Watch out in your midst. And I wish this weren't the case, friends. I wish it weren't the case. But the fact is that there are people in the church who join churches and they cause divisions in the church. Happens all the time. Odds are there will be people in our church at some point who will cause divisions. And I want you to notice how the divisions are caused. It's through gossiping and slandering and talking bad about others. They might disagree with the leadership on a certain decision and they just can't let go that the leadership decided to go another way. Or they look at somebody else in the congregation and say, man, they just get on my nerves. Do they get on your nerves too? Man, they are just so annoying sometimes, aren't they? I can't believe they said that. And they just, you know, it just becomes this nasty, ugly thing. And you can, you smell it. And I want you to be courageous enough in that moment to say, no, not here. That doesn't happen here. But it's going to take courage for us to watch out and not let gossip, slander, back talking, backbiting become the the MO of our church. It takes us being vigilant against that. Don't let it just fly. Don't be like I don't want to say anything because I don't want no hurt somebody's feelings if they are gossiping and slandering someone. Hurt their feelings because they ought not to do that. That is the best way to destroy a church. Because it is so insipid. And it's not on the front. Nobody's going to stand up here necessarily and say, Matt's a loser. They're going to whisper that in people's ears. They're going to whisper it in other people's ears that, man, can you believe what they did and what they said? And why do they do it? Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, They do it to serve not the Lord Jesus Christ, but to serve their own appetites because it feels good when people come to your side. That's not not how the church should operate. It's not about who's on whose team. The ones who cause division in the church aren't typically the bombastic. They aren't typically the ugly ones that you say, wow, man, I can't believe. No, that's not how it happens. They are the smooth talkers. They are the whisperers. You, there's one of my favorite scenes in The Lord of the Rings is Wormtongue. You all familiar with who Wormtongue is? Wormtongue is the advisor to the king who just whispers in his ear. And over time, that king loses courage. Over time, that king forgets who he was. And that's what happens over time with the whisperers and the slanderers, those who serve their own appetites. They whisper falsehood and they tear others down. Ought not to be so in the church of Jesus Christ. So I put together five practical ways to watch out. And let me just say the verb here of watching out is actually this, this sense of being vigilant. It's kind of like a sniper looking around and saying, I'm going to focus. I'm going to look for these things and I'm going to take them out. You know, I don't, wouldn't encourage you to hit anybody. I'm using that as an example of saying, I'm going to take this out, figuratively speaking. Uh, hopefully we won't have any fisticuffs going on in here. But I wanted to just at least say, here are five ways that you can take it out in the church. How do you watch out? Well, first of all, you rehearse the main thing, the gospel. Seems like a simple thing, but it seems like so many churches forget about what they're supposed to be about. Namely, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, even the annoying sins, even the annoying sinners, Jesus redeemed them. So rehearse the gospel that you, too, annoy someone else. You, too, get on somebody else's nerves. I promise you. Give yourself some time and ask somebody to be honest And yes, there's something that you do. There's something that I do that is annoying. I know. Many things, probably. Ask my family. Ask those who know me. See, a diverse church will have people who disagree with each other. That is a healthy church. Is a diverse church that disagrees with each other on many, many topics. Schooling options. What movies you like? What TV shows? Right? I've mentioned this before. Like sometimes we can be so weird if somebody says, "Oh, I don't like that show." I'm like, "Oh, I don't like you." <laughs> How could you not like that show? What's wrong with you? You know, music. Like they like a certain kind of music and you just cannot stand country music, but they really like it. So I don't want to talk to them because they like Brad Paisley or whatever. You know, alcohol, politics, whatever. You list off a list of. I promise you. But that's where the health of a church resides, is in the diversity of opinion. As opposed to everybody saying, oh, you watched that movie? Okay, I must watch that movie. We're not robots here. We're human beings that have preferences, and those preferences actually make us stronger. It's the the playing off of each other that makes the fabric stronger. That's what makes the strength of the fabric. Hmm. So rehearse that the main thing, the gospel, has to be the one thing that brings us together as a church. The one king over all kings. See, Paul's made it clear that the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, is the preeminent and superior truth that is worth dying for. And he makes every sacrifice for on behalf of people that he probably, sitting down having a cup of coffee with them, would probably disagree with them on any number of things. But he says, I'll go to bat for you because you're my brother. You're my sister. We need to remind ourselves of what the most important truth that can be compromised is the key to not heeding the smooth words of division. By practice. Right? We practice that day in and day out. Rehearsing the gospel of forgiveness that Jesus died for that person too. And I love them because Jesus loved them and gave himself up for them. Number two, other than rehearsing the main thing, put other things in their proper place. I'm going to send out another article, too. When I send out that friendship article, I'm going to send this article out um, that, uh, that was written about what's called theological triage. And I'll let you read the article so that you can learn more about it. But you've got first level truths which are orthodoxy, like Jesus is God, the Trinity. Jesus will return in body to rule again. Those are first-level truths, and those are 100% accurate that you can't be a Christian if you don't agree with those truths. Then there are second-level truths that uh, deal with differences of opinion or differences of interpretation, like whether you baptize babies or you don't, whether women should be pastors or not. Those are second-level truths. Those are not first-level truths. Those are not gospel. This is heresy if you disagree with this. This is not heresy if you disagree with this. And then there are third-level truths. When Christians can disagree on when Jesus will return and how He will return, return right? This premillennialism, postmillennialism, all millennialism—all these different millennialisms. That you could agree or disagree with on. So you've got to have an understanding and do the hard work. It's not something that somebody's just going to say, hey, this is what you should believe. No, it takes hard work to kind of put that in theological triage. So I'm going to send that article to you in the weekly as well this week. By the way, if you haven't been getting the weekly, I'm pretty sure everybody is on that list that I'm looking at right now. If you're not on it, uh, let me know. Because, and check your junk mail folder because uh, sometimes that goes in the junk mail folder. Thirdly, appreciate that people will work out their practice at different speeds and in different ways. This goes back to Romans 14 and 15, and I would make it a practice to read Romans 14 and 15 whenever somebody gets on your nerves. Whenever somebody disagrees with you on a practice, I would make it a practice to go to Romans 14 and 15 and see: wow, they're really disagreeing about some pretty intense things here. But realize that people have different speeds. And different ways of sanctification. Not everybody is going to agree with you. And, and really, in some ways, what you hold to be true and something, a hill to work, worth dying on, may be not a hill worth dying on. See, love and humility ought to be our navigation tools in the Christian life. Love and humility that I don't see perfectly. I see through a glass dimly. Our love will be imperfect, but our love still must be the the star, the north star, the guiding light of our lives. And so we lead and we follow in love. Fourth, I want to encourage you to do this. When you talk to each other after the service or before the service, I want us to focus on encouraging words and edifying words. Focus on encouraging words And edifying words as opposed to what is going wrong in life. And that doesn't mean you can't say, oh, things are really difficult. In fact, that's wonderful to do that. But being able to encourage one another. Say, hey, I'm so sorry that you're going through that. What can I do to help you? How can I help you? Can I bring a casserole over to your house? Like taking the time to build each other up. And that being the focus. That's how you watch out and say, that's how... Words that slander, words that cut down, won't have a place, won't get a foothold in our church is by us crowding it out with with things that build each other up, things that encourage one another is by flooding this room with words that build up as opposed to words that criticize and tear down. And then fifthly, by way of application is realize. Realize that we are in a spiritual battle. This is not just a matter of a difference of opinions. This is a spiritual battle. Satan is seeking not only to devour you as an individual, to destroy your faith, but he's seeking to destroy and divide and conquer this church. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. The God of peace will do what? Soon crush Satan underneath your feet. That The church is the place where Jesus continues to. That crushing of the serpent's head that he started at Calvary and then by his spirit, he continues to crush Satan's head by saying, not here. We should maybe We could all get T-shirts that says, not today, Satan, you know, not here, because this is a spiritual battle that we are fighting. And so don't think that this is just a matter of preference or this is just a matter of difficulty. This is a matter of spiritual importance. He's seeking to divide us just like he did our first parents in the garden where they started bickering and fighting and blaming each other. It's the same tool of dividing and conquering and beating up God's people. So when we pursue peace and unity as a church, we are actually in the business of crushing Satan's head. Because of this, we need to be laser focused. On the one who empowers us. And this is the undergirding principle of these two commands. Because it's not just a matter of, hey, we need to do more of this and less of this. No, 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 no. We need to do more of this and less of this because of the support and the strength that we get. Because of the one who already crushed Satan's head in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. He crushed his head at the cross. And so the undergirding principle here of these two commands is this. God's glory is to be our motivating force. God's glory is to be our motivating force in life and in death. This is something that is sown throughout Paul's letter. And see, Paul ends this epic letter by commending the Romans into the care of the only one who can protect them and preserve them to the end of their lives. Look at verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. As we saw in chapters 14 and 15, we are each called to live before an audience of one. Before the Lord, that person stands or falls. Who are you to judge, oh man? Do you remember that? It's before the Lord that you and I are called to live. And and we look to Him and we say, how will I be convicted of this sin? And then we say, the Lord is the one who does that work. It is before the Lord that we stand or fall as individuals and as a congregation. And Paul is praying over these beloved brothers and sisters that God would preserve them in strength that can't originate with themselves. You and I can't muster up enough love for one another. That is a work that is wrought by God himself, God the Spirit. And then Paul mentions this concept of mystery again. You see it in verses 25 and 26. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for ages, but that has now been disclosed. Why do, why do you think Paul mentions that again? Why do you think he mentions that again? It's kind of like kind of one last thing he wants to say. This is a mystery, but it's been revealed. It's a mystery, but it's been revealed. Why does he do that? Because that is the way we are strengthened in our faith. That's the very means. That's why he spent so many chapters reminding the Romans of God's faithfulness from chapter 1 to chapter 11 of God's faithfulness to his people. You're going to be strengthened in your faith and you're going to be able to strengthen other people in your faith by being reminded that God is faithful to bring his people to the promised land. To the new heavens and new earth. We remind ourselves of the great lengths to which God has gone to redeem us. Instead of striving harder to get right with God, we remind ourselves and each other that what has already been won in Jesus' is fulfilling all the law's demands of perfection. That Jesus has already done it so that there's not another burden that is being laid on your back. You say, Jesus has done it. He's freed me from the law, from the demands of the law so that I can actually do the law. And then verse 27, look at verse 27, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the only wise God who knows each of us in each of our shortcomings and each of our victories. And he is the one that our lives are intended to point toward. That your life, your the terminus of your life, the goal of your life is not you. Is not to be well thought well of by others, is not so that other people will herald your goodness, but instead to be able to say, Wow, wow, God. Saved that person and they love people. And I don't know where that love comes from. Well, it comes from another place, not from within myself, but it comes from another. It comes from Jesus who bought me and shed his blood for me. So Paul is putting a seal on this letter by saying all of this, all this theology, all these relationships between Christians in the world are intended to show the supremacy of God. The soul's delight and satisfaction so that difficulties and inconveniences are really tools to be embraced rather than avoided. Our lives are never never simply meant for ourselves. But have been redeemed for the renown of our creator. This is simply a restatement of what Paul says in chapter, chapter 11, verse 36. For from him... And through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that our lives are not about us. Our redemption is not about us. But we have the opportunity and the joy of pointing to One who has redeemed us. Who indeed has given us the strength. Who has given us the The ability to love one another, not a love originating within ourselves, but a love that has been shed abroad in our hearts. By which we call out to you as our father and we call out to one another, brother and sister, fellow worker, co-laborer, kinsman, friend. Oh, God, where we fall short, we pray that you would would meet us and show us that there is. There is growth and there is opportunity for growth in our own lives. And we are not there yet, but we pray that we would be there as a church day by day, moment by moment, reaching out to one another in love. Being courageous to love one another outside of those comfort zones. We pray all these things and thank you for all these things in the matchless name of our King Jesus. Amen.